We are with King Solomon. He's just become king. He has established himself uh, as king uh, uh, in the previous chapter. In chapter two, uh, he, he really, the last thing that David said to Solomon before he died was, uh, show yourself to be a man. And he was just a boy when he told him that, but he uh, he did. He showed himself to be a man. And uh, in order to do that, uh, 3,000 years ago, he had to put a number of people to death. Um, his brother, including his brother, Adonijah, who had tried uh, a rebellion, got some selfish ambition in his heart and tried a rebellion. Uh, and then uh, Joab, who had uh, formerly been the uh, head of David's army, but he he betrayed uh, David and Solomon by going over to Adonijah's rebellion. And so now, uh, uh, chapter three, the uh, Solomon is firmly in place. Verse one says, Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the uh, city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. You know, and so right now, Solomon's a very interesting character. Uh, he, uh, it, it says that God loved Solomon. Now, oddly enough, I don't know it says that about anyone else other than Jesus Christ in the whole Bible, believe it or not, uh, where it says that God loves a specific individual. Uh, uh, you can correct me, you can email me uh, if I'm wrong, but it talks a lot about God's love for us. It, it talks about God loves the world. and um, But in terms of mentioning a specific name that I can find, it's the only time where it says, God loved, and then blank, someone's name, Solomon. But, in, in, but nevertheless, we see Solomon just taking a terrible, terrible slide um, into, into a hardened, hardened heart, just callous sin, and uh, the, to the point where by the time that he dies, he's sacrificing his own children, he's worshiping foreign gods. It's, it's, really, um, it's really a tragedy. And, uh, you know, in the Bible, it does talk, uh, talk in First Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that all that stuff that I used to have in my former life, he said he used to be one of the most educated people in um, Israel. He used to, he had the, he was um, among the most zealous Jews out there. He uh, was from the tribe of ben Benjamin and, and he had it all, but he gave it all up. And, he's, and, and he says, so that I could know the power of Christ's resurrection and also have the fellowship of his sufferings. And so you can only imagine, as we're going to see Solomon uh, descend into sin over time, it said God loves Solomon. Yeah, it's the only time it, it says that, that I know of, of a specific individual, other than when God says to his own son that he, he loves him. This is my son who, in whom I am well pleased. 
but just the, the breaking of God's heart. We break God's heart when we descend into sin, Calvary Chapel. And so here we see the very beginning of it. He marries um, Pharaoh's daughter. Why does he marry Pharaoh's daughter? Well, he wants a secure southern border at the very south of Israel. You have the border of Egypt. He's like, I don't want any war with those guys. Uh, apparently, Pharaoh says, well, I'm, I'll enter into this treaty, but I want um, an intermarriage here. This is what they used to do. Actually, until very recent times, this is what countries did right up into the in 1800s and possibly even the 1900s, this is what nations did uh, in order to uh, make sure that people abided by a peace treaty, that you know, you marry your, your daughter to the foreign king. And this is what um, Solomon does. And, you know, what he is, you don't wake up one day and, uh, you know, Solomon, we're going to see eventually he marries, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, crazy, crazy madness, disobedience of the law of God. And, uh, but you just don't do that overnight. It starts with operating in the gray areas. How is this a gray area? Well, before when Moses was sending Israel into the promised land, he did list, he did list uh, generally, well, he lists specifically about eight or nine people groups don't marry them. They love foreign gods. They worship foreign gods. They will draw you into um, idolatry. Uh, and he doesn't mention Egyptians. But uh, by this time, uh, no doubt by this time, uh, Solomon knows better uh, than to do this. He knows better than to do this. He knows, for example, uh, that Isaac, when um, Isaac, uh, his son Esau, married a Canaanite woman, and then actually later an Egyptian woman, woman uh, you know, Isaac was very, very unpleased about that. And there is this concept in the word of God, 2 Corinthians 5, do not be unequally yoked. Don't join yourself in marriage uh, to an unbeliever. Don't do that. But here you see at the very beginning of his life, he starts to operate in gray areas. The Bible says, avoid even the appearance of sin. That is what the Bible says. And he's operating in this gray areas. Well, you know, Moses didn't mention this people group explicitly. Listen, if it's not a nation, if it's a woman from a nation that worships foreign gods, you shouldn't be marrying her. But he says, well, in order to get a peace treaty, just think what it's going, going to, uh, the, the peace that we'll have with the Southern neighbors, we won't uh, have to worry about it. There's always plenty of good reason to sin. Always plenty of good reasons to, to, to operate in gray areas. Calvary Chapel, just avoid even the appearance of sin. So he marries the daughter of um, the, uh, the king of Egypt. Verse two, meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father, David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense 
at high places. So what is this about? Actually, let's read the, 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 um, the next verse. So the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So what is going on here with these high places? Um, it, it, it mentions uh, there that he walked in the statutes of the Lord, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Uh, well, it, it, it's a little complicated, but what has happened at this point is that you remember that Moses, God told Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle when the children of Israel were in their period of 40-day wanderings. And in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant had the, the, the two tablets of the, of the Ten Commandments in there. Uh, it had some manna. It had Aaron's rod in there. And then it, it, above it was the mercy seat with the cherubim. And the literal presence of God was above it. There was an actual light. It was above uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was inside the tabernacle. Uh, it was um, it was a movable building. It was kind of like a it was a, a tent, a very elaborate one that they would move from place to place to place, and um, they would uh, worship the Lord at this tabernacle. But what has happened at this point, and it's 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 actually quite odd. Uh, we learn from the bo uh, book of First Chronicles that David took the Ark of the Covenant, and he brought it to Jerusalem. But the, ta the tabernacle itself, meaning the tent, it was in this high place called Gibeon. Now, once the temple is built, remember in the old, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, God tells Moses to tell the people, I will tell you the place where I want the, the, the temple to be built, and you will build it in that place. Uh, and that, of course, is Jerusalem. But at this point, the temple is not built yet. Uh, it, 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 and you have the, the, the Ark of the Covenant in one place. You have the tabernacle uh, in, this, uh, in this high place. And uh, high places, as, as a general matter, God didn't want them going to high places. What are high places? They're, they're, they're these places at the top of hills and mountains um, in Israel where the people who lived there before the Israelites, uh, that is the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, all these people, they worship foreign gods and they would go to the highest place in the land and they would worship God from there. And, and he, um, and they would worship God from there because, you know, superstition, they were as close as possible to God. You still have this kind of new age stuff today, by the way. Um, but uh, so God, a lot of the Old Testament law actually is uh, God wants a holy people. Holy means separate. That's what the word holy means. It means separate. And he wanted them to get away from this practice of any anything similar um, to uh, the 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 what the pagan worship did he wanted them to completely uh again avoid even the appearance of sin so he didn't want them going to these high places but somehow the the tabernacle itself 
got to this high place called Gibeon. Now, once the, the temple is built from then on, then it becomes a big, big no-no. And you'll see this throughout the book of First Kings and Second Kings. God really didn't want people going to substitute places to worship God. He wanted them in the temple. Of course, when the temple is built, the Ark of the Covenant was put in the temple in the most holy place. Uh, but at this time, there was uh, just religious confusion with the Ark of the Covenant in one place, the, the tabernacle is in this place called Gibeon. And it says that, verse 4, Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings there. A burnt offering, remember, from the book of Leviticus was uh, the one offering, as opposed to a sin offering, a peace offering, a trespass offering. The burnt offering, they burnt the whole animal. And that uh, symbolized, represented the full consecration, the full dedication of the life of the person offering the animal. So if I offered a bull as a burnt offering, it was like a big, big deal. It represented, I, I, I'm given my whole life uh, to, uh, to the Lord. Solomon offers a thousand of them. Now, in Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul, the apostle Paul, alluding to the burnt offering in the Old Testament says what? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Uh, meaning that he's making an allusion to the burnt sacrifice in which we, we give all our life, not part of it. We don't do the 50-50 thing. We do the whole thing. And so he offers uh, a, a thousand burnt offerings. And then it says in verse five, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? He, go, he comes to Solomon in a dream and says, ask whatever you want, Solomon, and I'll give it to you. A couple things here. One, I really see the mercy of God here. God is so merciful because he has just said in verse three that Solomon loved the Lord, except he sacrificed in high places. And, and even though he's operating again in another gray area, God doesn't like high places. That's where those pagan people, those new age people uh, worshiped. I don't want you guys to do that. Because there's this confusion at the time, it's almost like they don't really even know any better. The temple hadn't been built yet. He actually appears to him at this high place. This, this, this just shows the mercy of God. Now, it's very important that you don't take advantage of the mercy of God. You don't tempt the Lord because eventually God's going to say, okay, that's it. Uh, you're no longer a new believer. You're no longer confused about this thing and that thing. You know better. But it's amazing the mercy of God, particularly in the younger years of our life, where he will come to us. Even though we may be in some areas of life in a gray area, there may be even sin there, but he still meets us in the place where we're at. He accepts us just where we are. Now, he doesn't want us to stay that way, and he's not going to let Solomon continue in high places. He's going to eliminate the high place and start the temple, but you really see the mercy of God here. He's just said he doesn't like people going to high places to worship, 
But nevertheless, he meets Solomon there anyway. And he asks him, ask, what shall I give you? In other words, whatever, whatever um, uh, you want, I'm going to give you. And verse 6, it says, Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. Wow, that's what he asked for. Give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. In other words, give him, give me wisdom. Wisdom to what? Make lots of money? No, that's not what he asked for. Wisdom to, to, to what? To be a great military commander and, and gain lots of territory around Israel? No, that's not what he asked for. To judge your people. It is, in other words, to serve you. Give me great wisdom to serve you. Then it goes on in the middle of verse 9, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Verse 10, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Solomon, because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for a long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone, anyone like you before you, nor shall anyone like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And so God uh, tells Solomon, look, because you didn't ask for money, riches, because you didn't ask for power, because you didn't ask for long life, but you asked for wisdom to judge my people, I'm going to give you that wisdom, and I'm going to give you all those other things as well, because you bless me for uh, really asking me for uh, for something that really didn't have to do with you. It had to do with my kingdom and my people. Solomon, you put me first. Now, Calvary Chapel. I remember listening to my son 
uh, teach on a Tuesday night a couple months ago, and he said that uh, he thought that I quoted Acts 2.42 more than any other uh, verse. What's Acts 2.42? <laughs> uh, it's the verse that says, it's talking about the early church, and it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. And I quote that a lot. That's true. Acts 2.42. And so does Stephanie. If you're missing, those are the four pillars of a Christian life. Christian life is incredibly simple. The word of God, fellowship with Christian believers, prayer, and you better take communion to remember that you, God accepts you by grace and not by your performance. Just those four things. You take away one of those things, your house will begin to crumble. But I dispute what my son says. I think that the verse that I say more than I quote Acts 2.42 is Jesus, Matthew 6.33. You guys know what it is because we quote it so much around here. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. What things? All that stuff that the world goes through, power, money, uh, you know, position, all these things. Just seek first the kingdom of God, Calvary Chapel. Here's a perfect example here. He, uh, Solomon is asked by the Lord, Ask me whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you. And what does he do? He, he seeks first the kingdom of God. He says, God, the most important thing in the entire world is not me, it's your kingdom. Give me wisdom to uh, rule your kingdom. And it says these wonderful words in 10, verse 10, oh, that they would be said about you. It says the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And then what does God do? I'll give you the wisdom and all that other stuff as well. Uh, so don't you want your name to be plugged into verse 10? It says the speech or the, the question really is what it is, that what Solomon had just said, what he had just asked the Lord, that I want wisdom to govern your people. It said it pleased the Lord that who are the people on the call? Gabriella asked those things, that Gavi asked those things, Halicia, Kenny, Lena, Luz, Raul, Santa, Sara, Wanda, Jeff, Areles, Daniel, and Mary, Faith, okay. So if God asked you, ask me anything you want, anything you want, what would you say? Really, what would you say? You know, I, I'm thinking again of the uh, of the message on Sunday morning where we talked about Jesus looking at the multitude, seeing right through their hearts. He saw, what did he see? He saw damaged people. They were damaged. They were a sheep without a shepherd. It says that he had compassion. He physically broke down. His bowels physically broke down. And what did we say when we were talking about that? Don't you long to be like that? Don't you long to be like that Calvary Chapel? I, I mean, I don't want to just repeat the Sunday morning sermon, but is that the greatest thing to want, really? To want to be like God, to want to be like Jesus Christ. 
uh, who it says of him, he's lowly and gentle. Isn't that what you want to, isn't that really what you want? You know, if that's not what you want and and you're, and you're honest with yourself, you know, if, if God asks me, I'll take whatever, um, if, if, if God asks, if God asks me, well, I'll give you whatever you want. What do you, what do you want? If I have to admit it, I would want to be like president, a CEO of a corporate uh, of a of a corporation, I would want like uh, to be a professional baseball player or, or basketball player. I I, I would want um, to have uh, I don't know a big family, anything. And I don't necessarily have at the as the cry of my heart. God, I long to be like you. Ask them. Ask them to give you the desires of your heart. The Bible says, "Delight yourself in the Lord." And he will give you the desires of your heart. I personally think that means he'll place his desires in you. And let me tell you, you get to the place. If God, if, if God were to ask you in, in a dream tonight, if he said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. What do you want? Let me tell you, if you tell God, I want to be like you, Jesus, I want to be like you. In heaven, there'll be in, in, in some book somewhere that God writes, your name is going to be in verse 10. The speech pleased the Lord that Gabriela, that Santa, that, that, that Kenny, that Raul, that Matt or Karen asked this thing. God delights uh, to, to see us putting him first. Okay. I do. Before we go on here, I do want to say this. You know, he he asked for wisdom. He asked for a wise and understanding heart here, um, which for what purpose? Not to get rich, not to have a big military commander, but to govern the people. But you know what's incredible, though? The book of Hebrews says the new covenant, meaning the New Testament, is a better covenant than the old covenant. And that, 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 that verse, by the way, in Hebrews, it just jumps out to me like, whoa, it's like God made something in the, in the Old Testament. Why did he make it if it's not as good as the one he gave in the New Testament? And, and there's a lot of answers to that question, but, but there's a number of, uh, there's a whole host of reasons why the new covenant in Christ, in, in Jesus Christ, um, is much better than the, Old Covenant. What is the Old Covenant, by the way? The Old Covenant is that in order to approach God, we had to uh, we had to uh, sacrifice a, 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 a lamb, a, a goat, a, a bull, and the blood had to be poured. And uh, in order to get access to the throne of God, and that was just for that one day. The same thing had to be repeated the next day after you sin. The New Covenant. We look back to Jesus Christ, who gave His blood for us, so that uh, so that we, which covers all our sins, past, present, and future, so that we have access to Him all the time. But another reason um, why the new covenant, um, one of the reasons why the new covenant is better than the old one, is that you know in the old covenant it's just people like Solomon that were given uh, incredible wisdom. Well. I tell my wife, Stephanie, this all the time. Uh, in the new covenant, you could be, a, you could have flunked out of school, 
whatever, eighth grade, you can have the bottom 25% quartile of your IQ compared to the rest of the world. But if you have the Holy Spirit and you're walking in the spirit, brother, sister, you're the smartest person in the world. And I'm not kidding. I've seen it. I've seen it with people who have flunked out that they have very little education. Uh, they don't necessarily, they're not even, you know, uh, uh, th- their IQ, you know, that kind of thing is not that, high. but they're filled with the spirit and they're overflowing with wisdom. Oh, Steve, you're making that up. No, I'm not. This is a gift of the new covenant. Uh, it, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly uh, judged by no one. Verse 16, for who is not, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the mind of, uh, of Christ. And it says in verse 15 there in 1 Corinthians 2, you can judge all things. You're filled with the wisdom of God. And so um, uh, Jesus said uh, uh, a greater than Solomon. He's confronting the uh, Pharisees. He, he, he's saying a greater than Solomon is among you, and you don't even see it. Uh, and and what, what Jesus has purchased us uh, is absolutely incredible. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Every person who, uh, by faith, puts their, uh, uh, rather, every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, is given the Holy Spirit. And once you have the Holy Spirit, man, you're the smartest person in the world. If you're walking in the Spirit, let's continue. So it says in uh, verse 15, then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a a feast for all uh, of his servants. And so... In verse 16, now we're going to have the famous illustration, demonstration of the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 16, now two women who were harlots came to the king, prostitutes came to the king, and they stood before him. Now, uh, if this doesn't strike you as an odd scene, it should, but this is how it was at that time that that, uh, people who had grievances against one another, uh, if if the lower courts uh, or, or people who had been delegated to help the king with justice if the, if, if the matter was unresolved, you could take your case directly to the king. So here you have two prostitutes before the king. They're going to argue about who owns a baby, but they're in front of the king. And uh, my, my mentor, a pastor by the name of Damien Kyle, he, he points out here, and I think it, it's fantastic, uh, there is only one more absurd scene than two harlots coming before the most powerful king in the world. 
And what scene may that be? It's the scene of you and me being able to go before the king of the universe with all our sin, with our own hearts. We, we prostituted ourselves to any number of things in, in our lives, but we can go before the king of kings. And, and so this actually is a great picture to us of, of the axis that we had. So what happens here? Verse 17 says, and one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had been I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. So they both had babies at about the same time. Um, they were prostitutes. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she laid on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. And then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Again, I, 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 this is a fascinating story, but the fact that these two prostitutes are bringing this to the most powerful king in the world, uh, incredible. And, and, and it's just a picture of what we have when we're, we can go to the king of kings. So it's no wonder that the lower courts couldn't figure this one out. This is not easy. Can you imagine what you do? How do you figure this thing out? Uh, and so uh, verse 23, it says, the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child into two and give half to the one and half to the other. Verse 26. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other woman said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. In other words, cut that kid in half. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And so uh, this, this, um, this, this story here, it's even made its way into the secular world. I mean, the secular world uh, 
even people who don't know anything about the Bible, they're familiar with the expression splitting the baby. Uh, and and that this is where it comes from. It comes right here. So the king just boldly and courageously exercises this wisdom that God had given him. But again, from what did we learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 2? When you are filled with the Spirit, you have the wisdom of Solomon. That's a fact. In fact, even greater. You have the mind of Christ. So let's continue in verse four. Solomon, uh, rather chapter four. Uh, Solomon's um, king kingdom is uh, has been established here. Uh, let's just uh, let's move on. It says so. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials: Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. Alihareth and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the sons of Ahalud, the recorder, Benaiah, the sons of Jehoiada over the army, Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabed, the son of Nathan, a priest, and the king's friend, Ahashar over the household, and Adoram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. Uh, and so a number of these had these guys had been in the uh, cabinet of, of David, and they were carried over into Solomon's cabinet. Uh, I, I, I just want to, before moving on, I just want to bring attention to at the end of verse five, where it says the the son of Nathan, a priest, this guy named Zabed, Zabed, the son of Nathan, a priest. And it says, and the king's friend, the king's friend. And it's interesting because it, there's also someone in David's cabinet who is just called a friend. Jehoshaphat, we'll see a king later on. Uh, there's a Jehoshaphat mentioned here, but a different Jehoshaphat who's going to come about 150 years from this point also says in this cabinet, a friend. Uh, and it, it, it kind of warms my heart when I read that. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs, a man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And Jesus said uh, to his disciples, you've called me Lord, and that's a good thing. But now I'm calling you friend. Uh, Jesus is our friend. Uh, you know, we, uh, uh, we were made in the image of God, and uh, we are social beings, and we long for friendship. The women's retreat this weekend, what's it about? Friendship. It's, it's, it's a part of the, the necessary dynamic of the Christian life. So I'm going to go ahead and quote Acts 2.42 again. So Sam is going to say, you see, he quotes it all the time. But four things, what are they uh, that we need to live as a Christian? We need the word, we need fellowship, we need uh, prayer and communion. But that second one, fellowship, that's essentially, what, what is that? Friendship. Let me tell you. Uh, what I owe to the friends that have been in my life over the years is 
I mean, they, they'll only know when they get to heaven, uh, you know, how incredibly grateful I am for them. And a, a true friend is this, someone who will come to you when you're going the wrong way and saying, Steve, you're going in a wrong direction. Stop. And a healthy, uh, a, a healthy cabinet for a king is when he, there's someone on there who's a friend who's willing to stand up to the king and say, no, no, this is wrong. Uh, same thing for a church. The worst thing that could happen with a church is for the church board to be a bunch of yes men, uh, where they're just saying yes to anything the pastor uh, says. And, and, and I'm very thankful for friends that I have on our church board where they're like, no, this is not a good direction. And so fascinating that one of the cabinet members is a friend. Uh, in other words, that that's his office. I'm the friend of Solomon. Uh, and so uh, in the next verses, it says that uh, uh, Solomon had uh, 12 governors over all Israel uh, who provided food for the king and his household, and each one made provision for one month out of the year. So I believe this uh, these 12 governors corresponded to the 12 tribes. And for one month out of each year, that governor was responsible for coming up with the food for the king's household. Now, when you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, and you can imagine how many children going along with that, that's a lot of food. And uh, I'm not going to go through each of these guys' names. Um, you, you're welcome to. Uh, in your uh, own time, but um, these 12 governors were responsible for, for bringing that food. In verse 20, it says this. Let's skip down to verse 20. It says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. And so uh, this is a period of unprecedented prosperity in the land. There, there, we saw in the book of Judges many times they were enslaved uh, to people, the Israelites were. Uh, we're going to see after this time, uh, again, the, the Israelites would be uh, enslaved to various peoples in, in one form or another. But during the reign of Solomon, uh, it's it's almost a, a it's almost a, a a foreshadowing of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ in one sense. There's just tremendous prosperity. It says the people were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. That last word, rejoicing, is pretty important, right? Because even if, even if you're um, eating the most uh, choice meats and foods of the land and drinking whatever, the most expensive wine or whatever it is they were drinking, without rejoicing, what is life? Life's not worth living. And, and that was the spiritual, that was the God component that was added to Israel that allowed them to eat 
and drink with rejoicing. Only God is capable of making you into a person who can rejoice with the creation, with the bounty of creation that he has provided uh, to you. You take God out and eventually that, that bounty in creation, uh, there's just not going to be a peace there. There's going to be a misery there. It says in verse 21, so Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines at, um, as the border, as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, interestingly, way back in Genesis, way, way back in Genesis, uh, where, uh, where God is, has, has pulled Abraham out uh, to the, this is this, so this would have been, let me see, this would have been about a thousand years before, uh, where, uh, where Abraham, who's technically the first Jew, some people say that his grandson Jacob was the first Jew, but I think more accurately, uh, Abraham's the first Jew, the world had descended into sin so much that the world had almost completely lost the knowledge of God. Rather than doing the Noah and the flood thing and destroying the world, which God promised he'd never do again, he, uh, rather than initiating judgment, he initiates redemption through Abraham. He, he pulls Abraham um, out of the land of Ur, which is modern-day Iraq. He sends them into the land of Israel, and he tells them, eventually, you're going to have all this land, all of it. You're going to have it. And he says in Genesis chapter 15, 18, to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And so in the, it wasn't until a thousand years later, the, uh, during the reign of Solomon, that this is realized at this time, as we read in verse 21, we just read it in 1 Kings 4, 21, Solomon reigned all the way from the river Euphrates all the way to the border of, of Egypt. So God fulfills his promise here. Now, in verse 22, we're going to read what Solomon ate every day, what his household got to eat. And I'm telling you, this is some serious prosperity here. Uh, this is, uh, is it... Is it too crass to say this is some serious pigging out? Look at what he ate every day, his household. Now, keep in mind, eventually he had 700 wives, 300 children, lots of, lot, I mean, 300 concubines with all the children uh, of those thousand partners. And he um, had lots and lots of servants. Well, guess here's what he ate. You thought your Thanksgiving dinner was big. You thought your grandmother had a gigantic feast for you. Listen to this, verse 22. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl, like turkey and... Um, 
what are some other fowl that you have? <laughs> uh, chickens and um, ducks and this kind of thing. Verse 24, for he had dominion over all the region on, on this side of the river from Tifsha even to Gaza, namely over all the kings of this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each under his vine and fig tree. And, and that's a significant statement. Uh, there's basically no poverty among the Jews at this, at this time. Uh, everyone had a fig tree, everyone had a vine, uh, meaning a, uh, a, a vineyard or, or uh, a vineyard of some size where there were grapes coming from. From Dan, meaning in the north, as far as Beersheba in the south, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Okay, so with, with some of you, alarm bells should be going off there. Why? Well, we've gone over this quite a few times when Moses was speaking on the other side of the Jordan, right before the children of Israel went into the uh, land of promise and, and occupied it. God said, here are my rules for kings. They're number one, they're not supposed to multiply horses. Number two, they're not supposed to multiply wives. Number three, they're not supposed to multiply silver. They're not supposed to multiply horses, meaning they're military. I don't want you to Psalm 20 says, I some trust in horses and chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. He was saying, I don't want my kings trusting in big armies. And so what happens here? We've already seen one red flag with Solomon. He marries the, uh, the, the daughter of the king of Egypt, a pagan king, pagan woman. And then next he's... He, he gets this outrageous number of, of stalls for his chariots and his horses, which really, so, so again, you're beginning to see a tendency in Solomon where he's got so much power and prosperity, he takes on a mentality. And, and you got to watch out for this, Calvary Chapel, because this will, this temptation will happen to you when God prospers you. It will happen to you. You'll start thinking, well, look, I'm, I'm so prosperous now. Obviously, I've gotten so much favor from God. Not all those minor rules apply to me. I mean, I, I get it. They apply to the body of Christ in general, but I'm different. I mean, look, uh, you know, a person, and, and this is how so many people uh, get into uh, get into trouble and, and pastors and preachers fall into scandals because they somehow think that because God has used them great, the rules no longer apply to them. What's interesting to me is in Deuteronomy, when Moses is saying that, uh, I think one of the most fascinating laws in the, in the book of Moses, I think there's 613 laws so you have this law for kings, no horses, no multiplying horses, no multiplying wives, no multiplying money. But then in the next verse, verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17, it says this, and it shall be when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book 
from one before the priests, the Levites. So every time there was a new king, God wanted to make sure that king knew the law of God and made him write the whole thing himself, the whole word of God, uh, which at the time, you know, would have been at least um, would have been a Genesis to, to Deuteronomy. He had to sit and write the whole thing. Solomon knew this stuff. He knew he wasn't supposed to be marrying an Egyptian princess. He knew he wasn't supposed to be uh, uh, multiplying uh, uh, horses and chariots. And, 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 you know, not only was it, it's, did God not want the king to trust um, in, in horses and chariots rather than trusting in God himself, God didn't want the king representing to all of Israel that this is what you trust in. You, you, you trust in the big, big, big old army. He didn't want him to be misrepresenting God in that way. God is bigger. God doesn't need a massive army. And we'll see this in, in First and Second Kings, by the way. Uh, God takes care of business even without armies. We'll see that in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Let's continue. Verse 27. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King, King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceeding great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. So largeness of heart, that means he, he was... Um, very liberal in his giving. He would just give out. He, he was very gracious with, with um, all that the Lord had given him, which by the way, the Bible teaches every Christian should be the same, uh, the, the same way. I love the Old Testament. The proverb says, um, the liberal soul will be made fat. And in the King James, that word fat just means very prosperous, meaning if we liberally give what we have, God will prosper us. Verse 30, so Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite. That is the author, by the way, of Psalm 89. And Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So the book of Proverbs is written by who? Solomon. And uh, I don't know how many there are. There's 31 chapters. I don't know how many they are in the book of Proverbs. Um, but it also, it says, and his songs were 1,005, and we know that the song of Solomon is included in the Bible, so we have that. Verse 33, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the uh, hyssop that springs out of the wall. So he was really into nature, studying nature. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Okay, I want to end there tonight with this last comment. People will be coming from all over to listen to your wisdom if you walk in the spirit.
Because as it says in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, when you have Jesus Christ in you, you have a greater than Solomon. And, and, and it says in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, you have the capacity to, to make spiritual judgments about all things. In Christ, Calvary Chapel, you have this wisdom. And over time, you'll see people coming to you, seeking out wisdom from you. People who used to, at one point, they just looked at you as this snotty little spoiled brat, whatever. They'll be coming to you because they see the hand of God on you. 